I'm dreading this podcast. I am too. I live now in a world of ghosts, a prisoner in my dreams. He has a type of communion with them. What does it mean to have been through a passion? What are you waiting for? I want knowledge. You want guarantees. I hope you all are not too depressed now. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't Welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Dokapil. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. And I'm dreading this podcast. I am too. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about uh, The Seventh Seal, which I chose, and maybe we're both regretting now, yep. um, because we don't like go- uh, experiencing pain, and nope. this movie is just like all pain. But I think maybe I, I, I introduced it, and I was fascinated when I first watch it, watched it. Maybe, I guess, we have different pain tolerances. <laughs> because Sophie is like, I is like, here's, we watch, it's very similar to Silence, thematically. It's a lot about, it's a, about the silence of God. Um, and it, it is very much a wrestle with despair and comes very close to despair. And maybe it's up to debate whether it actually ends up with an attitude of despair or not. Uh, but I, I didn't really, I really didn't like si- silence. Uh, but Sophie is like, yeah, but I, but I talk, to- but I'll tolerate it because yeah. I think it's interesting. I was kind of okay with it. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like that's my attitude towards this in the sense that, yeah, it's definitely a cramp, uh, to watch, but I'm intrigued by it, but you, you just don't like it at all. I just didn't enjoy it. Well, to be clear, we just watched it an hour ago, maybe. Um, yeah. You had seen it before. Yeah, I watched it when I was, like, 17. Okay, so, so I, I had never seen it. I didn't know anything about it. Um, it's just a slog. It's just hard to get through. Also, I think, uh, you know, if... <laughs> I think that people don't need more... If you're If people are already sort of inclined to despair, then... We don't need any help doing that yeah. in this movie. Makes it a lot easier to be to be nihilistic or to think nihilistically about the world. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I think it's worth having a conversation about. So I'm yeah. glad we're doing that. I guess I was I wasn't entertained by that by the movie, but also you know I don't know if movies necessarily need to be entertaining. Sure. And maybe that's one of the things that Ingmar Bergman was doing. At least what he, one of the things that he was challenging as a contemporary contemporary filmmaker in his own time. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued. And for me, intri- being intrigued is also enjoying in some weird sense. Sure. Um, and there are just interesting things to be said about it. So Ingmar Bergman is considered to be, I guess, a one of the greats, like a, a classic one of... He has produced a lot of films which people now consider to be classics. Mm-hmm. The Seventh Seal came out in 1957. It's famous because it's famous for being the movie that surrounds a knight having a chess game with death. And it was written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. A couple things about him. He's a Swedish film director. He was raised in a devout Lutheran household, although it seems pretty clear that he's like either a lapse protestant not or an atheist well i guess those are the same thing um and um we don't really know what his attitude towards religion was near the end of his life at this time he would probably say he was an atheist but there's a lot of ambiguity ambiguity in this film and i think it could be made an argument could be made that he was definitely wrestling with it and you could see that come out very clearly in this film and I think that that the wrestle there is something at least a little bit noble, at least commendable about that. That um, at least maybe a honesty could be said. Yeah, um, is happening here, whatever that means. <laughs> um, but anyway, mm-hmm. so this film it is set during the 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 Black De- Death in Europe. I don't know where where specifically in Europe. It's a Swedish film, and the film is in Swedish, but I don't know if. 
it's like it looks like England to me. It looks like England. Yeah, I it's think got it's castles to... and court gestures and. Yeah. I think it's meant to be England, even though it's a Swedish film. Um, but it's set during the Black Death, and the protagonist is a knight named Antonius Block. He has just returned from fighting with the uh, in the Crusades, and he probably. I mean, it's obvious that he's having a real crisis of faith mm-hmm. when the movie starts, and part of that probably had to do with the very real crises of faith that many of the knights may have struggled during the Crusades, being part of something that was uh, so obviously horrible and, and so much bloodshed that was mm-hmm. ostensibly commissioned by church, uh, by the church and by proxy God, um, that might have thrown a lot of people into confusion. And there was definitely a lot of spiritual confusion going on during this time. And yeah. that's when it sets... That's when it opens, and it opens on a beach, which is very significant to Bergman. He has an association with beaches, uh, the, the ocean, and redemption, which shows up in other other films. So there's that going on there. Mm-hmm. The opening, the title comes from a verse in Revelation, and when the Lamb opened the scroll and broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. I don't know if I quoted that perfectly right. Yeah, no, I think um, that's right. Yeah, but that's... That's the context of the quote, and that's a voiceover at the beginning. And Antonius Block meets a character who is the personification of death. What's really interesting about that is, first of all, that was a pretty unique idea for film to be using, to be kind of exploring these deep philosophical concepts in a sort of artistic way. Um, Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman was innovative in that sense because he was, saw the medium of film as being able to do things that a lot of people didn't think at that time. Movies were just for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's one of the themes of this movie. So, I also think it's it's so medieval to have a knight coming back from the Crusades. Uh, setting is you know almost like a Canterbury Tales kind of setting. Exactly. And yeah. then death shows up, which is such a medieval thing to happen. Um, and it immediately sets up the fact that in this movie, we're in a medieval world, we think about things in kind of a medieval way, um, and something like death coming and playing chess, we're supposed to understand that in a symbolic way. So I think we're sort of invited to interpret the movie in a, in a way that is more symbolic than we would interpret most other modern films. Right, exactly. And so the setup of the film... Death says, I've come to get you. Antonius Block says, do you play chess? And Death says, yes, how did you know? And he says, from the folklore and songs. So you really have to be kind of versed in sort of medieval medievalism, I guess, uh, the medieval world to understand that this is his way of looking at the world, right? And in medieval art, Death is known to play chess. Block doesn't say, do you play the fiddle? Right. Well, why, why do you why do you bring that up? The devil went down to Georgia. Oh, <laughs> right. Which may have, which might be a, like a great setup for like a modern seventh. Yeah, seal if you movie. made a if you made the seventh seal now, maybe they would have a fiddle, a, a fiddle fiddle contest. That would be interesting. I mean, I, don't, I wonder if that has anything to do with Fiddler on the Roof. If that was like an idea going on there or not. Oh. I don't know. Maybe Death does play the fiddle. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Anyway, uh, so anyway, so the symbol of Death being a person that plays chess, and part of this, part of Antonius's um, motivations for this is he's trying to buy time for himself, and the reason why he's buying time is because he has a crisis of faith, and he wants to figure out the answers to his faith before he dies. And so when I first watched it, I thought it's a symbol for that he has the plague or something. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think he has the plague. I think he's just death is coming like he's coming for everyone and everyone's afraid of it. So before we go on, let's talk a little bit about the medieval world. Like Mm -hmm. what what is the medieval world like? Because to me, it is such a strange universe. I I, I feel like it's almost like a, a world of its own. And it's no, you know, it's no surprise that it takes like six years to get a PhD in medieval studies. Because <laughs> it's so complex. Yeah. And it's so hard. People who do get a PhD come to the conclusion that they really can't come to a conclusion about anything about the medieval world. Um, it's like, is it the Enlightenment? Is it, you know, the Age of, of Light? No. Is it the Dark Ages? No. Um, some of the things that make the medieval world so strange is 
because it's so deeply entrenched in Christianity, mm-hmm. and yet there's so much symbolism that emerges from it um, that appears to be informed by Christianity, but is also weirdly divergent, and it's very difficult to trace where those things come from because it it doesn't seem like it's coming from the Bible, and mm-hmm. there's not like a lot of clear record of where it is. Right. Um, and there's like this whole thing with alchemy too going on, right? Yeah. And, and and symbolism. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the big important things are we're talking about a pre-Reformation world. Um, which means that there's only one church. So when you think about religion or the church, uh, we're talking about the Catholic church, um, especially in, because probably this film is theoretically set in England. So the, the people like the, the modern people, uh, the vulgar people, vulgar meaning common people, um, aren't going to be reading the Bible for themselves, um, so everything that they know about theology or about God or about Christ or the church comes from what the church is telling them. Um, and in this movie, actually, the there's not a super positive portrayal of the established church as an institution. There are some positive portrayals of religion, but they're all on an individual level. Like the knight prays in ways that are sincere and portrayed positively, I think. But for the most part, images of the church, like there are some crucifixes that look kind of strange and grotesque, which is not really uh, authentically medieval, but a way that the film is sort of playing with those ideas of the the way that the church is so important in the medieval world. Um, So that's one thing that's really important. The other thing that's important about the medieval world is life expectancy is... Like 30. Yeah, so low. Um... The likelihood of living very long is not high. Um, Women die in childbirth all the time. Um, People, you know, get sick and die. You have no idea when that's going to happen to you. You don't know what's going to kill you. It could be anything. It could be at any time. Which means that in the medieval world, people naturally have to struggle more with their mortality. Um, You are preparing for death all the time because you literally don't know when you could die. So you had to think about death in a different way than we do now. Um, And I think this film taps into that really well in the fact that everybody has a different relationship with death and everyone is responding to death in different ways, but they all have to. In our world, we don't think enough about death that everyone needs to have a philosophy of death, especially when you're young. It can seem so far away and so distant from you that you don't need to have an internal monologue. You don't have to have a philosophy about it. Mm-hmm. But we, this it, movie is set in a world where you have to have something to say about death mm-hmm. because you're going to have to have something to say to death. Right. And these characters do. They all do say something to death at the end of the film, and we'll get there eventually. Yeah. Um, the one other thought I have about the, the medieval world and how that's important to this film is that medieval art is symbolic inherently. You're expected to treat everything as a symbol. Um, And characters actually are more often a symbol than they are a real person. We're used to, in the movies and the books that we read or that we watch, we're used to seeing characters as whole-formed people. Um, If a character isn't complicated, if they're sort of flat and one-dimensional, that's a bad thing in contemporary art. That's not true in medieval art. In medieval art a character is really standing for something Mm -hmm. more than it is standing in for a person. So it wouldn't be surprising to someone in the medieval world to read about a character who is one thing, they're only ever one thing, they don't change. Um, They're, you know, maybe it's a a milkman who um, really loves women and is always chasing women around and he's a representation of lust. And everyone would understand, this is just a representation of lust. I like how it's a milkman. I don't know why I said milkman, okay? <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> I don't know if they even had milkmen in the world. The point is... <laughs> there's a milkman who is a representation of lust. He never changes. There is no other fact about him. There's no backstory. There's no deeper, more complicated reasons for him being the way that he is. He just is lust. Yeah. And that's okay in medieval art. And in this movie, if you go into it thinking, I want these to be really uh, fleshed out, complicated characters, 
the knight Antonius Block is really the only character who maybe fil- fulfills that desire. Everyone else is really standing for something else. Yeah. Um, and even though this film isn't medieval art, it's very medieval in its in its presentation. So very, very true. You have to understand that going into it. Right. So I think there are about maybe like ten other characters other than the knight who kind of comprise the cast of characters here. And then we'll, we'll go into the, I guess, the types or the symbols that they represent. So there's a character named Jans, who is Antonius Block's squire, who's a very crude, vulgar guy. Um, I guess he kind of represents lust. And, well, I mean, I don't know if he does or he just represents brutality. Yeah. Um, because he's not really a creep, but he'll, like, I just do what I want. Right. Sort of thing. And so... And he's very... he's. A- Really irreverent. Very irreverent, right. Um, he's he's the Louis C.K. of that world. Yeah, the first time you see him, he's singing a song about sex and something about the devil. It's not, I mean, you yeah. immediately know that he's uh, he's not the ideal Christian in this world. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so anyway, so there's the squire, and I mean, he's really actually... Uh, he's really scared of the Black Death, although he's trying to hide it when he looks at all the paintings. Right? Yeah. Um, you can see he's actually well a good performance, too, because there was it was well done. You know, you could see him like trying to hide his um, because he's trying to be a, he's kind of a false stoic because he's mm-hmm. trying to be tough about death. And because his point of view is that this life is really all we have. So we should just enjoy the momentary bits of pleasure that we have, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's kind of like what that poem "Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light." That's that's my that's his whole point of view. That's his whole thing. Um, there's a woman who is a rape victim who's an interesting character because it's a. Uh, I think she's uh, perf- the performance is very well done, but she doesn't actually say anything till the very end. Yeah. Um, well, I, don't, I also don't know whether she's a rape victim because it's, that's never actually shown in the action of the movie. But he, she's probably been some victim of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a blacksmith and his wife. The wife is uh, cheats on the blacksmith, so I think she probably is like the representation of lust because that's her whole thing. She's just should have been a milkman. Should have been a milkman. She's the, the milkwoman. <laughs> she she should have been a milkman. That's funny. Well, okay. The blacks yeah. So the blacksmith, and the blacksmith is kind of this, kind of just a dirty, un, uneducated peasant. And yeah. Like they, he doesn't have any kind of instruction either in the way of intelligence or in the way of virtue. Um, and so, and that's kind of the case. And then they're, they're kind of in some sense, victims, ignorant victims of like the, the church's propaganda at that time. Yeah. Um, so there's the blacksmith, his wife to recap the blacksmith, his wife yawns, the squire, uh, the silent woman, and then there are a troop of actors uh, uh, whose names are, uh, what is it, Mia and... Yoff. Yoff. Mia and Yoff. And they're really... Mia, Yoff, and Antonius are really probably the most positively portrayed. I mean, they're, they have at least some likability about them. Yeah. Most of them don't. And so Mia and Yoff are traveling actors, and they have a child... And there's some interpretations, a lot of different interpretations of what they represent. There is an implication that they may be Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Um, they also maybe represent art, if that's Ingmar Bergman's attitude towards art as being maybe like the saving grace mm-hmm. of the miserable existence, or the nuclear family. But probably Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is fair. Um, and Yoff has lots of visions. And that's another interesting thing about him. He sees what he believes to be Mary. Well, he sees Mary and the Christ child and she, they're walking and she smiles at him and then she disappears and Yoff describes it as there was silence afterwards. So there could be some kind of positive aspect of silence going on there too. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe there's an, again, an ambivalent attitude towards silence, the silence of God versus, uh, the beautiful silence, right? A kind of silence in heaven for half an hour. Like, that's actually, in the context of Revelation, that's a good thing. Um, and I think it was George MacDonald who described heaven as a place where the regions are only life and therefore all that is not music is silence. 
And so maybe there's some kind of intimation that there's something positive about this kind of silence that they're, that they're reaching for. Anyway, um, so Antonius sort of falls in with this acting troupe whilst having this chess game with death, death. And he has a, he visits a church and he sits in on a confession booth and starts talking to the man in the, the priest who he believes is a priest in the confession booth. And it turns out that the priest is actually death hearing him, although he doesn't know it. And here's what Antonius confesses to the priest and also reveals part of his motivations for doing what he's doing. Um, I want to confess as best I can, he said, but my heart is void. The void is a mirror. I see my face and feel loathing and horror. My difference to man has shut me out. I live now in a world of ghosts, a prisoner in my dreams. Despite that, you don't want to die. Yes, I want to. What are you waiting for? I want knowledge. You want guarantees. Call it what you like. Is it so truly terrible to comprehend God with one's senses? Why does he hide in a cloud of half-promises and unseen miracles? How can we believe in the faithful when we lack faith? What will happen to us who want to believe but cannot? What about those who neither want nor can believe? Why can't I kill God in me? Why does he live on in me in a humiliating way despite my wanting to evict him from my heart? Why is he, despite all, a mocking reality I can't be rid of? Do you hear? I hear you. I want knowledge. Not faith, not assumptions, but knowledge. I want God to stretch out his hand, uncover his face, and speak to me. But he remains silent. I call out to him in the darkness, but it's as if no one was there. Perhaps there isn't anyone. Then life is a preposterous horror. No man can live faced with death, knowing everything is meaningless. Most people think neither of death nor nothingness. But one day you stand on the edge of life and face darkness. We must make an idol of our fear, and that idol we shall call God. Very ecclesiastical. Uh, mm -hmm. Very much of a, a book of Job sort of wrestling with God, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's fair, I guess, theologically speaking... To say, I don't want certainties, I want knowledge, but also understandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that's, I mean, to go back to, like, Babette's Feast, for instance, one of the things that I guess is a message in Babette's Feast is that the significance of communion being a tangible thing that you can touch. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's God incarnate, right? Yeah. And, and, um... And that's why that verse is quoted, mercy, uh, righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very, like, like physical thing. Yeah. Goodness and happiness, you can have that at the same time. It's not like spinach and french fries, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, actually, um, speaking of the medieval world uh, and a connection there is um, in the medieval world... So education in the medieval world basically meant having a strong reading comprehension of Latin. And so what that meant was most people would read um, the Aeneid. You, your Virgil was your school textbook. Um, and so the Aeneid is super important in the medieval Christian world, which is obviously the world that this movie is inhabiting. And there's a really similar theme in the Aeneid to this what what Antonius Block is talking about, um, because Aeneas's mother, Venus, appears to him all the time, but she always appears in disguises. She never appears as herself. She's always showing up as someone else. Um, and he, because she's his mother, he always wants her to actually be able to talk to him, but she never does. Um, and there's this scene in book... It's either book four or book three. That's fine. Um... Uh, as Venus is leaving, because she's just given Aeneas some advice, she's told him where to go, and then she leaves, and it says, At that, as she turned away, her neck shone with a rosy glow, her mane of hair gave off an ambrosial fragrance, her skirt flowed loose, rippling down to her feet, and her stride alone revealed her as a goddess. 
He knew her at once, his mother, and called after her now as she sped away. Why, you too, cruel as the rest? So often you ridicule your son with your disguises. Why can't we clasp hands, embrace each other, exchange some words, speak out, and tell the truth? But of course she doesn't say anything because she's she's already gone. She's left. Um, and that's a, th- a theme that goes through the entirety of the Aeneid. Um, and I think it's interesting that that's a piece of art that these, the people, the char- these characters would have been saturated in. And that art also has this idea of the gods or the spiritual or the divine is removed from you in some way and it's difficult to touch. Um, it only comes close to you in little shades and half promises. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really commune with God in in Aeneas's eyes um, and also in the eyes of the characters in this movie. Right, right. So, I mean, it's kind of like a return to Gnosticism, which I guess is like a constant struggle. You right. Know? I feel like that's just kind of our, our default setting, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of the incarnation is something that we have to constantly remind ourselves of because we, I guess it just goes really against our sensibilities of yeah. God. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that that's definitely a, a great insight to be yielded from that scene. Another one that I found is is this sense that he can't get rid of God in him, which I thought was a really fascinating idea because he's looking around, especially because of this, the, there's pretty negative portrayal of the church here. He's probably doesn't really have a very high regard of religion in general, and maybe he wants to discard of it entirely. Um, but one of the things that he's confessing here is that I can't get rid of God in, in myself, mm-hmm. which I guess, I mean, is very Augustinian in that sense. It's like I search inside myself and, and there he is. If, if that may be all, you know, if that's all where I'm looking, what am I saying? <laughs> if that's the only place where I can look to and I find him, like, I have I don't know what I'm saying here. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that made me think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. And that's really, really actually, I feel like, woven into the screenplay here. Mm -hmm. Because there is a really interesting commentary on darkness going on. Particularly the idea that death is darkness. Mm-hmm. The world beyond is darkness. God is darkness. When actually, um, I guess, theor- in theory, he's supposed to be light. Right. And we are supposed to be in darkness. Right. Um, but the psalmist says, the darkness is not dark to you. The darkness as, is as light to you. Mm-hmm. Which I guess you could take the inverse of that and say that the light is as darkness to you, or at least our what we think light is. I don't know. Um, but I mean, like, the idea that we can maybe maintain that idea that he is light and we are darkness um, when we understand what the psalmist is saying when he says the darkness is as light to you. Yeah. You know. Well... I think the movie itself is sort of a weird, interesting meta-commentary on that idea because all these characters are afraid of death and all these characters don't want to die. They don't want to go, you know, beyond the hill into the world, beyond into darkness, whatever. And they're calling that darkness, which would imply that the world they're inhabiting is light, which would imply that the world they're inhabiting is a good one. But as I'm watching the movie, I don't enjoy inhabiting their world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like a good world to me. It doesn't even seem like it's particularly fulfilling to them. That's part of the reason the movie is disturbing, I think, is that their lives are so fruitless. They seem so meaningless. They seem like they don't have any direction to their lives. Like, the, the sorts of things that these characters do are things like, you know, perform 
inane thing, like, do inane performances as jesters in the square, or, um... Perform licentious, get into affairs. Yeah, get into affairs, or it's all it's all carnal, and there's no real point to anything that they're doing. And so as they're, they're calling death and the world beyond darkness, I'm thinking, okay, well, if that's darkness, then what what's your world? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because your world isn't any good either. And so I think there's maybe the suggestion that they have it wrong. They have it flipped. What they don't know... What is the unknown to them, to these characters, they call darkness. But if you are in the dark and you are blind, you don't know what darkness is. Mm-hmm. So their world is is dark because it's sad and pointless yeah. and disturbing to inhabit. So the world beyond, like, what's their reason for thinking that the world beyond is worse than this one? Mm-hmm. That it is more dark than this one? Because you already live in a pretty, a pretty sad world. Yeah. Okay, okay. so, uh, yeah, I want to do, do, we'll do a little context provision here again. So, the characters, the blacksmith and the wife, the wife gets in an affair with one of the actors, um, and, and then, uh, and then there's a kind of like a, a big brawl over that. And it's actually a little, there's a little bit of comedy in this scene where the, the actor sort of gets out of this by pretending to commit suicide, um, because he's an actor and, you know, actors, that's what they do. They're hypocrites. Um, and then, and then we have Yawns the Squire who rescues a woman from almost being raped, but then doesn't really treat her much better. Yeah. Um, he almost rapes her himself. Well, he says, I, I could rape you, but I won't because uh, I'm just tired of that sort of thing. Yeah. So he's clearly not a nice guy. No. Um, but he he has, he has is an int- he's in an interesting position because he's arrived at some sort of conclusion where he has decided he's not going to do horrible things because he's just tired of doing them. Um, which, I don't know, I, I, I didn't like him when I first wa- when I first watched the movie. After watching it more, it's like, maybe there is something um, commendable about someone... I mean, he's very obviously very arrogant, very prideful. Mm-hmm. Of, and maybe there's a part of him inside that says, I want to be a good person, but I don't want to admit that I want to be a good person. So I'm going to come, I'm going to be ironic about it. Right. I'm going to pretend that I'm not wanting to be a good person because of good reasons. I'm just w- not being a bad person because I'm tired of it. Yeah. Um, so it could be like, if there's anything like maybe redemptive to be said about him, maybe that's there. Yeah. But anyway, um, he's definitely very violent. But his whole point, his whole view on life is, you know, like... Well, you shouldn't. Love is an illusion. Everything is an illusion. So, you know, maybe just enjoy the light while it lasts and then the death and just kind of toughen up mm-hmm. about it. And then and then the the woman and the blacksmith, their attitude is mostly just I'm afraid and I just want to stay out of trouble. Right. Because they're at like the bottom of the barrel of society. Yep. And then. And then we have some and then we have. Antonius Block, who was going through all of these different characters, and I guess what he's looking at is he's saying, you know, I don't really want to have any of these attitudes towards death. I don't think any of these are correct, but I don't really know what the correct answer is. Right. And so my response is just to be paralyzed and and to say nothing. Right? Yeah. Am I missing anything here? Uh... You want to talk a little bit about the uh, the, the actor, the acting troupe, um, Mia and, I keep on forgetting his name. Yoff. Yeah, Mia and Yoff. Um, sure. I mean, they, as care, I think I mentioned earlier that they seem maybe like the most, the, the characters that feel the most like people. Um, and they also, of all the characters, seem to have the least relationship or concern with death. We don't really see them worrying too much about the plague. Um, they don't seem particularly concerned. 
that something bad is going to happen to them. Um, most of the scenes where we see them, they're outside. They have their young child. They're very happy. They're happy together. They love one another. There are no weird affairs going on there. Um, there's no concern that that family is going to be broken up in any way. Uh, maybe the only real concern you have for any character throughout the whole movie is you, you're worried that something might happen to this family because they're sort of the most positively portrayed people in the film. Um, and there is that dramatic tension that sets up, that's set up. So Antonius Block says that before I die, I want to do some sort of redeeming thing Yeah. to sort of redeem myself um, uh, because I don't really know what's right and wrong, but maybe all... If I just act, then maybe that that's that's meaningful. So it's very David Foster Wallace, right? Yep. It's like it's not what you believe; it's just act, mm-hmm. right? Just um, so existentialist too, in that in that regard. And his his I guess noble act ends up being kind of being falling in with this acting troupe who he, whom he regards rightfully as a healthy and happy couple. And trying to protect them from death. Yeah. So he steers them away from some neighboring town, which the plague has been rumored to be threatening, and says, "Will you? Why don't you come to my castle, where we'll be protected?" And at the same, and it puts him in a good mood, and he starts uh, playing chess with death, and he thinks that he's winning, and then death says, "Uh, "Who's that couple that you're hanging out with?" And he's like, "Why do you ask?" And death says, "Oh, nothing." (laughs) And you're like, "Oh, oh, oh, no, no, no." Another one bites the death. This starts happening where death just starts picking off people one by one. Yep. And um, sort of Agatha Christie style. And he's going around searching and interrogating people. And there's also one person which is probably the most disturbing is the witch. The woman who's been classified mm-hmm. as a witch. Um, and Antonius Block goes to her. She's about to be burned on the stake. And he goes up to her and says, can I speak to the devil because you're possessed by the devil? And the devil must know something about God if nobody else does. Which is he, I was, that's an instance of Antonius Block going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Right. That is the wrong way for him to try to find out about God. Right. Well, I mean, but he doesn't, again, it's like he hasn't had that direct access to God, like, because he hasn't got any education. Yeah. Like, you know, he's a squire. So it's like, he'll just look wherever he can look. Like, whoever... These are all my options. Yep. Right? And so... And he doesn't find her there. Yeah. He doesn't even find the devil there. Which is... which is, He's a little bit disappointed about that. Um, yep. And she believes, because she's gone mad. It's, it's very just depressing. It's a very sad scene. But yeah. She says, you know, look into my eyes. Do you see the devil there? And he says, all I see is a woman seized by fear mm-hmm. because you're not possessed by the devil. Yeah. You're just, you've just been treated so horribly. Um, and so, and so he gives uh, her a painkiller to suppress the pain while she's burned and says, yeah, well, not going to find God there. And so that's probably the lowest point there. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Um and oh, but it gets worse though, because then, <laughs> because then they're sitting in the forest with the acting troupe, and they see there's a man who is uh, just in like uh, a, a apocalypse. What's the word? Apoplectic fit. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the plague. He has the plague, and it's very painful to watch. And the woman who's silent, the silent hasn't spoken, is wants to aid her by giving him water, and the squire. Yawns prevents her from giving him water because he says it won't do any use. Which actually made me think of Christ on the cross because, like, when, even at the moment when he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? You know, at the moment of his deepest despair, mm-hmm. he said, I thirst, and someone gave him water. Yeah. And that's probably Yawns' most unforgivable act is that he will not even grant that because he's so committed to his nihilism. Mm-hmm. He will not give this man who is dying of the plague water. Um, not because it's like dangerous for him to do, but just because he, it's no use. Right. It won't saying. do anything. But it's interesting that she wanted to do that, though. Because, again, maybe something that this char- that Bergman is praising as maybe a commendable way to act is, act is to act rather than speak. Like, not have a philosophy. And yeah. so the fact that the knight 
redeems himself through action, and maybe the woman redeems himself through action, make them redeemable characters. Yeah. Well, I... I have an argument to make about the unnamed woman, but I want to wait till we talk about the last scene because I think that's really where the evidence comes in. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, okay, yeah, there's a couple other things I wanted to go over here. I mean, this, what I think is really, a really great connection here is T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets um, because I think this is a great explanation of, and maybe there was an influence here, I don't know, but Eliot says, the speaker in Four Quartets, I said, to my I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. I said to my soul, be still, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. There was a time you were in a bad mood, and I sent you this poem to cheer you up, and I don't think it did. Um, so, in that sense, I'm not a great friend. Not... <laughs> I, I think it did. You're like, no, I don't <laughs> like this. <laughs> okay, I mean, but also it did help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I'm glad. I've, it's a somewhat redemptive, but I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful poem. It is gorgeous. Um, but I feel like that's, that's, um, that's kind of maybe part of the message that's happening in this film is that like if you look around in the world and you're in a world where maybe all representations or traces of god seem to have vanished and yet you look inside yourself and you feel like god has to be there then maybe the only thing that you should do at that moment is wait mm -hmm. is to say nothing because you're not ready for thought and you're right. not ready for love yet um but you can't stay there and maybe and maybe that's the maybe that's some a problem for this film is that you can't stay in that position right. forever um but that's an honest at least an honest position to be in yeah so the way the movie concludes it ends in the knight's house we meet the knight's wife uh Karen and they all have dinner supper which you connected i guess you th said that was like a last supper supper sort of thing yeah probably yep. happening and they read the scripture again of the seventh seal and the silence of heaven for half an hour there's a storm outside and death arrives and everyone stands up and in this really i think brilliant scene everyone says something to death and that and their statement towards death is a sort of summary of their whole philosophy about death and really an explanation for all of their actions up to that point so karen we don't really know about much about her but I guess she's a symbol of hospitality. Mm -hmm. She's not really afraid of death. She says, I bid you welcome. Because hospitality is being a virtue in the medieval world. Yeah. That's a tangent. Um, the blacksmith, his attitude is, hey, uh, hey, death, looking great today. Because he wants to get out of trouble. Yep. I'm not a great man, but look, I'm not worse than anyone else. Curtsy. Hey, honey, can you curtsy for death? Um, so they're, again, they're the person who just tries to get away with things, right? That's the symbol. That's the type. The knight being the knight of faith who's struggling, his attitude is, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. So he's in the background praying, covering his face. Yeah. And Jans' attitude is, enjoy it while it lasts. That's all that matters. Toughen up, buttercup. I think what he actually says is, enjoy wiggling your toes. Yeah. <laughs> and then the silent unnamed woman says a really chilling line where she gets down on her knees and says, it is finished. With a smile on her face. With a smile on her face. So what is going on there? Yeah, so here's my, here's my argument about the unnamed woman. I think she's Christ. And here's my argument for that. So first of all, she is really both a silent victim and a silent servant 
throughout the whole throughout the whole movie. So in her first scene where she shows up and yawns, uh, saves her life from the person who's threatening her, and then he says, "Okay, I saved your life, so you owe me. Um, you need to come be my housekeeper. Like you're gonna be my servant." And she doesn't she doesn't speak obviously because she doesn't speak the whole thing, but she does go with him. So she goes with him as his servant. Um, and then she tries to give water, obviously, to the, the man who has the plague. Um, so she's trying to, who also, I don't know if we mentioned this, but he, the, the man who has the plague, Raval, is the man who threatened her earlier. Mm -hmm. So she's trying to give water to her potential rapist. (laughs) Um. Oh, I I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that. It's the same character. Um, so she's there loving her enemies, or at least trying to, and it's Jans who who tells her not to. And then we get to this last scene, and we have a Last Supper situation, right? So we have her and everyone else sitting around. We have the um, the Bible being read, the, the passage about the seventh seal, and there being silence in heaven. Um, and the whole movie is referencing the fact that God is silent, right? Everyone's saying, why is God being silent? <laughs> Um, and saying that that's a bad thing, that the silence of God is uh, being negatively portrayed. And then I think it's interesting that we have this character who is actually silent throughout the whole movie Mm. um, at the same time that we're saying God is silent because that already is making a connection between the silent woman and then the silence of God. But there are two ways to think about silence, right? Because there's either silence that is apathetic. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say anything because I don't care. And then there's the silence of you know, silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Yeah. Um, or like this, the sila in the Psalms, right? The, right. That musical interlude mm-hmm. after the music, in between the music. Yeah. 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 And I think it's really important that Christ is portrayed um, in scripture and elsewhere as a silent victim, which is really what this woman is. Um and then we come to the end, right? And she faces death and she smiles. She reacts with joy in some way. And she says it is finished, implying that she's been through a passion, right? She's suffered. And of course, they've all suffered. The whole world is suffering because of the plague. So could you define that? What does it mean to have been through a passion? Um, so passion uh, comes from the Latin word that means to suffer, um, or to experience, uh, which that word itself also comes from a Greek word that means to experience basically the same thing. Um, and the passion of Christ is the the suffering of Christ. So to experience or go through a passion or a type of passion would be to experience something that is similar to or like the passion of Christ or the suffering of Christ on the cross. So it has to be something about specifically like the suffering of Christ um, because just suffering is like, there's nothing unique about that because everyone does that. But to say right. that you've gone through a passion, there's something unique unique about that kind of suffering. You're yeah. Saying. Well, because she, this woman, the silent woman, suffers and doesn't deserve it. There's no indication that she has done or is doing anything that deserves what's happening to her. And when other characters in the story suffer, they complain about it, right? The blacksmith, his wife cheats on him. He cries and is super upset about it. Um, Jans is super scared about the plague and he's complaining about the world around him and he's like, enjoy it while it lasts, you know. Um, Clearly blocking his whole crisis of faith. He's saying that there are big problems with the world and he's suffering and he complains about it out loud too to death and to everyone else. Um... This woman doesn't say anything. <laughs> she doesn't complain. Uh, she doesn't... Uh, she's she's a victim of the same difficulty, of the same suffering, but she doesn't respond like anyone else. She doesn't respond at all. She accepts it. And by saying it is finished, I think she's implying that there was a purpose to all of it. <laughs> um, she was doing all of it for a purpose. Um, because there's a line earlier in the movie where they're talking about the people, how they respond to the plague... Uh, and there's this one character who says, the priest says it is better to die clean than to live for hell um, because they're all trying to purge themselves by using fire to do that. Um, anyway, the point is, if this woman is supposed to be Christ... Well, okay, let me back up. It reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Is Thursday 
because we've talked about the man who is Thursday before, but the, the part that's important here is the character that you think is the villain, the whole book, turns out not to be. Actually, the character that you thought was the antagonist, um, kind of who, who you thought was a devil mm-hmm. character, is actually the Christ character. Mm-hmm. And in the final scene, the thing that's interesting about him or that's different, the character's name is Sunday, is that it turns out that Sunday has been with them suffering the whole time. They all complain to him of their sufferings, and he says, I was there too. I've been here suffering with you. And the last line that the character Sunday says in The Man Who Was Thursday um, is the the protagonist is thinking through everything they've been through and all their sufferings, and he suddenly stops and he says, wait, unless, have you also suffered? He says that to Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday's last line in the in the book is he says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? And the the point there is that God has come to be among men. God is incarnate, right? Mm-hmm. God is among us. He's experienced what we've experienced. And that's part of the point of the incarnation. Um, but what if that is so subtle? <laughs> it's so... Um, God coming to live among us can seem so normal to us that we don't notice it anymore, that we forget that the incarnation isn't special or important. And Antonius Block uh, is saying all these things about, you know, I want knowledge, I don't want faith, I don't want assumptions, I want knowledge, I want God to stretch out his hand, uncover his face, and speak to me. I don't want him to be silent. But God being silent might be God's incarnation and God undergoing the passion and the suffering necessary to redeem all of humanity. So Bloch doesn't know what he's asking for. He maybe doesn't know that God is there already mm-hmm. and that he just needs to be to be still, to wait for it. Right, right. And But there's also, also the possibility that 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 he's actually just he's not really making an authentic christian statement at all and rather that this is just kind of a kind of nihilism oh yeah of right? course because because or in, both in, yeah or both or maybe it's meant to be open to interpretation because ingmar bergman was very ambivalent about his faith yeah and maybe was not willing to really come out and make a a, a full statement but maybe wanted to leave the door open so, like, it's certainly not atheistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we dis- can come to the conclusion that it's Christian? Um, at best, it's agnostic. But maybe we can make the argument that maybe it's headed in the direction it's more Christian than agnostic. The mm-hmm. way it ends, actually, is with... Uh, I keep on forgetting his name. Mia and... Yoff. Why do I keep on forgetting? <laughs> this is the third time... I've denied. I'll write it on my forehead in Sharpie. (laughs) Yoff, Mia and Yoff, Yoff sees death leading all of these people who have died in a procession into the world of darkness, into darkness, which is like, is this into the eternal light or is it just darkness because the darkness is light to him and the darkness shall be the light and the stillness to dancing. Right. And... And so, also, the three, the, the, the acting troupe, are the only characters that end up surviving from this tragedy. So maybe there's some kind of hope there. But what does that hope mean? Does it mean, because they're artists, does it mean art will go on? Is that all he's saying? Which mm-hmm. would be maybe a little bit disappointing. Um, or is he saying, like, religion will go on? Mm-hmm. Or is he saying, you know, is this, jo- is this Joseph, Mary, and Jesus that's going on? Mm-hmm. Is it, like, the family going on? Uh, maybe all he's saying is like the only thing that we know for sure is true is a wholesome family, like mm-hmm. uh, a father, mother, and child, and the simple pleasures of life. And we don't really want to say anything bolder or more or or, or more celestial than than that. Right. Well, I think the here are the few the few things that I think maybe tie some of that interpretation up together. Um, I don't know if we mentioned earlier that the scene that makes Antonius Block really, that endears him to this family, is when they all have food together. Um, They eat strawberries and milk, which is what the family gives him. 
Um, and that is a type of communion that he has with this family. And that's important because Block's whole problem is that God is so intangible. God isn't real. But he, when he has that food, he has the strawberries and milk with the family, he suddenly, that gives him hope. Um, and it's this communion with them that gives him hope. And it's at that point that he really wants to save them. And ultimately, he tells Death that that's the meaningful thing that he's done. When he plays chess with Death and kind of knocks over the pieces and distracts Death to be able to allow this family to escape, Death asks him, without noticing that the family has gotten away, um, did, you, did you do the meaningful thing that you wanted to do? And he says, yeah, I did. So there is that element to the story that at least even if Block is wrong about everything, you know, even if nothing means anything in the world, even if he's going off into the nothingness of death, he did do the one meaningful thing. And the money, one meaningful thing wasn't, you know, having affairs or sleeping around or mm -hmm. uh, doing performances or whatever it is. The one meaningful thing he did was save other human beings. And, and the fact that he is saving a family which may in fact be a stand-in or symbol for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus right. may mean that there's at least some kind of um, nod to Christianity there. Well, I think the fact that he has a type of communion with them and that's what makes him want to save them, I think that makes that interpretation really likely to yeah. me. Um, rather than just, it's just some random family. It's that he's showing some kind of love and devotion for a type of Christ child that he's going to hide them. He's going to save them from Herod. Um, I think that's, that's important that that's an act of redemption that he does. Um, and it's also very Dostoevsky because Dostoevsky uh, in especially Brothers Karamazov, but this is a theme he talks about in all his novels, that it's easy to love humanity in general, to say, oh, I, I love people, I love humanity. But then when you're tasked with loving specific people, then that's really hard. Um, but that by showing love for specific people, that's how you show love for Christ, because if you love the least of these, then, then you have done it unto me. Um, that you need to love individuals, in all of their quirks and flaws and individuality in order to love Christ. Um, and when you love real people, then that is how you show love and devotion for Christ. And so by acting in the service of other people, by being selfless, by making a sacrifice for others, maybe what he's really doing is showing his devotion finally for Christ. Even if he doesn't say that. Yeah. And he might not even know, but he's acting, he's not thinking, mm -hmm. which is the whole point. I guess one more thought I had about this is that he asks everything, everyone in the film, what happens after death. Mm -hmm. And he even asks death, and death says, I don't know. Which I thought was really interesting. Death is just a door. Death is just a door, and death, death is not Satan in this and he's mm -hmm. not an antagonist, really. He's just death. Um, he's not cruel, right. which is part of what makes him scary. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and so then, again, it's like, this is, I guess this is not a film that is making an argument for Christianity, but it is making a statement that, like, where can I flee? Right. right? <laughs> um, so maybe that is a statement. I hope you all are not too depressed now. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Even if we did. More than we did. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com, check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast, or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. 
This podcast is produced by Raymond Okapil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the four gospel frontispieces, an art series by Makoto Fujimura. Until then, friends, if you see the milkman coming down your driveway, run. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide. And maybe it's true that nothing is new, but I can see so much more in you.